Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea was this anyway? I'm Andrew Peyton Smith, founder and CEO of Jizoodle. And welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea is this anyway? And we're up to episode 14, and we've got an amazing guest on. Um, today, we've got um, Craig West, who is the founder and managing director of Succession Plus. Succession Plus is a specialist business exit advisory based in Sydney, and it advises its clients to begin with the end in mind, which is absolutely sage advice from my experience as well. Craig's a strategic CPA accountant with more than 20 years experience in advising businesses with a speciality on business exit. Craig is currently undertaking also his doctorate in business administration. By the way, that's a little bit of a pipe dream for myself. I've always promised myself I'll be undertaking the doctorate <laughs> myself. And the thesis is business exit planning and using employee share ownership plans for succession. Craig has also achieved a Master of Business in Accounting and Finance and is a Master of Tax Law as well. Welcome to the Craig to the Founders podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it should be an interesting uh, discussion we're going to have because it's an area that I'm certainly not clear on, that's for sure. Craig, you're a busy man. Tell us more about your doctorate and why you're really passionate um, about uh, employee share ownership plans. Yeah, I guess, um, look, I ran an accounting practice uh, nearly 25 years ago now and dealt with business owner clients almost Mm -hmm. exclusively. And what I found was over and over again, um, they had problems with the area of succession and exit. They weren't sure what to do. They didn't know how to prepare. They, they weren't even sure what their business was worth or whether they might even be able to get out of it. Yeah. And that led to them making some pretty ordinary decisions, to be honest. I saw lots of business owners that sold their business for the wrong amount of money at the wrong time to the wrong buyer, paid them the wrong amount of tax. And that led me to really look at this whole area of exit planning. So I started, uh, in, you know, sort of mid-2000s looking at exit and succession planning. What I found was there's not a lot of people doing it. Yep. There are a few accountants that help their clients with it. There are a few people that uh, went to law firms or even people like business coaches mm-hmm. that talked about succession or exit planning but didn't really have a process or a system around doing it. Yeah. I travelled to the United States in 2009, I think it was. I did a course with a group called the Exit Planning Institute. Okay. And the Exit Planning Institute actually educates advisors on exit planning. It's a whole industry in the United mm. States. There are businesses over there. That's all they do. And I very quickly decided that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I found that there was a, a gap in the market and I thought that it was a significant gap. One of the things I found as an accountant was I'd often get frustrated at, you know, I was helping people lodge their tax returns and mm-hmm. finalise their financial statements. For me, I found that boring as anything. I yeah didn't really believe I was adding significant value for clients, but I knew that if I could help them get their exit right, that was significantly valuable. Mm. And so I started back in 2009, I published a book which had an 11-step process to exit planning. You know, how do you work through the various things you need to do to get the exit right? That's now 21 steps. I've built a business over the last 10 years that now has 22 people. Mm -hmm. We've got advisors in every capital city. And all we do is succession and exit planning. That's all we focus on because there's this gap in the market, Mm. particularly for mid-market businesses, you know, smaller businesses, 
cafes, hairdressers, news agents go to a business broker and they sell for what they sell for. Mm-hmm. Much larger businesses end up in listed companies and private equity firms, etc. cetera. Yeah. And there's this big gap in the middle where there just yeah. is no logical exit strategy and they need a lot of advice to get ready. So that's really how I got into that sort of space. The employee share plan area mm. came up as part of that as well. That's just something that I found there are lots of gaps in the market around knowledge particularly yeah. and understanding around what an employee share plan was and how they worked and how you could mm. actually use them. So that's really where I focused a lot of my attention and certainly the academic research is around employee share plans. And how's the doctorate going? Slowly but good. There, <laughs> There's a lot of work. And look, I think, you know, I went into it very naively My two master's degrees were coursework, not research. Mm. So, you know, the the university side, you know, it's very different doing research and I sort of naively went, yeah, it can't be that hard. Yeah. And it is. And there's a lot more to it. And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, even I was quite used to writing. I'm a prolific writer. Mm. Um, I write blog posts and articles for all sorts of people and magazines and you name it. But the academic writing that you need to do for a doctorate is completely different style. It's completely different structure, et cetera. And so it took me quite a while to get used to that. Mm. Um, and I'm still getting used to it. I still submit regularly, um, you know, chapters of the thesis that have massive reviews and feedback from the lecturers. Yeah. But I've enjoyed the process. I mean, it's a lot of work, but I've enjoyed yeah. the process and the <clears throat> discipline around the research and, you know, every single comment you make in that document needs to be documented and verified and, and backed st- up <laughs> and supported. Absolutely. I, I did um, my undergraduate um, degree, I did a 10,000 word dissertation. And um, whilst that was ultimately really enjoyable, it was just painful throughout. But I had a really excellent tutor um, that kept right. pushing me, pushing me, pushing me, and, um, and really pushing me to my boundaries almost. And um, that's one of the values of such a good tutor having in place. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what have you found during your, um, uh, your literature re- uh, review? Yeah, look, I think there's some really interesting things coming out of it, sort of different to what I expected, I guess, when Mm. I first started. But one of the key things is typically baby boomer, white Anglo-Saxon Australian males Mm -hmm. are typically two things. One, they're control freaks. (laughs) And two, they're emotionally connected to their business. Mm. And there's this whole academic school of thought around a thing called role identity fusion for business owners. Okay. Which simply means that the identity of the person is fused with the identity as a business owner. Mm. So, you know, the guy that owns John Smith Plumbing, whilst yep. his name's John Smith and the name's on the door and the name's on every van that drives around, he is emotionally connected to that business. And for yep. most of those people, most of those baby boomers, separating them from their business is actually quite traumatic. Mm. Okay. And so that's why we've seen this massive wave of baby boomers Mm. looking to exit their business, but inevitably they delay it. Yeah. And the stats at the moment are that something like 70% of them have delayed exiting. Really? So the first baby boomer turned 65 in 2011. Yeah. But most of them didn't even think about exiting. Then they've just continued on. I've got several clients in their 70s and 80s mm. who still own businesses yeah. and who are looking at exiting. So what the literature review made very clear was that there was a lack of understanding and knowledge around what options were available Mm. for exit and particularly a lack of understanding and knowledge around the option to use an employee share plan. Yeah. But the benefit of an employee share plan is there's sort of two schools of thought around exiting. Mm. There are a group of people that own businesses that are exiting purely for a financial harvest outcome. Yeah. 
they're looking to sell the business for $5 million so they can fund their retirement and they never have to work again and they'll live off the investment earnings. Yeah. And that's, that's great. A lot of people go into business with that outcome in mind. Mm, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. The other school of thought is a little bit more around what's called stewardship or legacy. Okay. Where, and typically, if you look at a baby boomer in Australia today, they're reasonably wealthy people. If you've mm. owned a business for 20 or 30 years in Australia, yeah. you bought a house back in the 60s, you've probably bought an investment property in the 70s, you know, you're now a multimillionaire, no matter how mm. you look at it. Yeah. Um, you've got a business that's worth some money and you probably, I have had several clients say to me things like, I actually don't need the money. Yeah, okay. It's not about a financial harvest for them. Mm. What it's about, though, is a legacy. Okay. And so it's very important to them. They'll say things to you like, I really want to make sure my employees are looked after. Mm. I want to make sure whoever buys this business doesn't muck it up for my customers or yep. suppliers or employees. And so interestingly, an employee share plan is one of the only exit options where you can actually combine both. Okay. You can actually get a financial harvest out of it. Mm. And you can have a legacy where you look after your employees and your clients and your suppliers. And so doing both of those things actually meets both those targets. So both groups of people can achieve that. The second thing that's really important is you can do it gradually. Mm. Most baby boomers, if you walk into their office today and say, I can sell your business, sign here, they're a little bit, oh, gee, I don't know if I really want to actually do that. Yeah. Because I'm so focused on the legacy, stewardship, it's my baby, I build it up from scratch, I don't want to just walk away from it. Mm. But if you said to them, well, look, you can gradually sell this to your employees over the next seven years, that's a different conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's nowhere near as threatening. And yeah. so it's a gradual sale. They can still get a financial harvest, but they also get the stewardship legacy type benefits. Mm. It's actually a win-win-win. I describe it to people as a win-win-win. Absolutely. And are there any differences between Australia and, say, the UK and, and USA in terms of how business owners view that need for, for legacy? No, I think it's a universal thing with okay. particularly people that have been in business for a fair time. Mm. If you bought a business four years ago with a view to building it up and selling it, then the legacy is yeah. not that important to you. Yeah. But if you think about some of these people that started businesses, as I said, 30 or 40 years ago, they're now 65 and they're mm. looking at selling it. That's the majority of their life they've spent in that business. Yeah. Working on it, building it up. They've gone through difficult times. They've gone through GFCs, downturns, you name it. Mm-hmm. And so it is their baby in many ways. And so they're very reluctant to see anything happen to it. Yeah. And they really are focused on this legacy. So I don't, I don't think it's an Australian particular okay. view. I think it's a baby boomer particularly mm. view. Yeah. Um, and a focus around leaving a legacy and making their mark and, you know, their name. I've had several examples where clients have really been very unhappy about the fact that the new buyer wanted to change the name. Yes. In one example. Yeah. I had one client where the new buyer cancelled his email address and he threatened legal action. They're quite extreme outcomes mm. because people are so emotionally attached to the business. That would be absolutely fascinating. So I might, might do some side research on that myself because that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. It's an interesting area. Yeah. It's an interesting area. Absolutely. Going back to um, startups and small mm. businesses in general uh, needing basically succession plans, they're generally underprepared and, and, and that's through lack of knowledge and so forth. What, what are the pitfalls that you see for the preparation of success plans within, within startups and, and small businesses? And when should they really think about it? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot often, and, and again, this comes out in the research, people delay this. People mm. think, okay, that's, yeah, that's important. No one ever says it's not important. Yeah. They understand it's important, but it's not urgent. 
Mm. I can leave that. I'm only 30 years old. Yeah. I don't need a succession plan until I'm 50. I'll worry about that later. Yeah. What's happened, interestingly, with COVID-19 and the environment that we're in at the moment, a lot of those people are being caught out mm. because part of succession planning is making sure that you're prepared for what we call unplanned events. Yeah. And COVID-19 is an unplanned event. No one saw it Just coming. Just a little bit. You know, there are some people that claim they saw it coming and Bill Gates predicted it and whatever else, but yeah. no one knew when it would come, what it would be like and what effect it would have on the world economy. Yeah. And it's been substantial. Mm. And you can see regularly stories every day about businesses going into voluntary administration, whether it's Virgin Airlines or Carriage mm-hmm. Works or small startups. There's a lot of small startups yeah. that, never, that are not going to survive this period yeah. because they just didn't have this prepared. My view with any client, whether they're a startup or a mature business is, succession planning is largely around risk mitigation, mm-hmm. both for yep. unplanned exits and for planned exits. How do you want to actually exit your business? Mm. I think you said in the introduction, I always say begin with the end in mind. Yeah. Start out your business, whether it's a startup or a mature 50-year-old business, you should have an end goal in mind. Yeah. And uh- if you don't, then I wonder what you're doing all day every day. Where are yeah. you headed? What are you doing? What decisions are you making? How are you planning for the future if you don't know where you're going? Yeah. So for startups particularly, I think they do need to start with the end in mind. Mm. Think about what they're trying to build and why they're trying to build it. Are they trying to build it to sell it? Are they trying to build it to keep it in their family for many years to make an income? Yeah. Because all those things lead to different decisions. So it's really yeah. important to start as early as you can mm. with the strategy in mind. Now, it might change. Things might happen. Obviously, they do. But at yep. least you've got a strategy and you're working towards a goal and an outcome. And you brought up a really interesting point about uh, different outcomes over the life of the business. How important is, is planning for different scenarios, for instance, in that as well, for a particular exit? Because as I say, life is not always well, it's never linear, for instance. Would you advise to actually for businesses to start thinking about, well, this is, this is the vision, this is the scenario I'd like, for instance. However, I need to also think about these other areas. Yeah. Yeah, one of the processes we go through with our clients is exactly that. You know, what what do you want from this? What are you trying to build? And what does it look like? I often ask people, what does it look like in 2040? Yeah. 20 years down the track, long-term horizon, what does your business actually look like? Yeah. And once they've got that, that's an easy, that's that's often easy to get. Then you've got to start asking, okay, what if? What happens if in 2030 there's a global pandemic? Yeah. What happens if there's another GFC? What happens if the internet collapses completely because of mm. some cyber you know, issue in 2025? How are you going to cope yeah. with that? Now, we hope none of those things are going to happen. This is not all mm. about doom and gloom, but yeah. it's about having a plan around what you do if. And yeah. what we've seen in the last couple of months is there are some very large businesses who've been caught out very badly because they haven't done any of this planning. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, The fact that you've got, for example, and I'll give you a good example. I'm mm. happy to dob them in. You know, I've, I'm dealing with Telstra at the moment on a telecommunication problem. Now, their online phone answering service, I was on hold yesterday for nearly 90 minutes. Oh. And at the end of it, they put me through to the wrong department and then disconnected me. Oh. Now, what that tells me is, and the excuse they gave, even when they answered the call was, due to COVID-19, we have experiencing longer delays. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this is a telecommunications company that hasn't got a telecommunications system yeah. and work during a pandemic. Why yeah. not? Absolutely. Who's running that joint and why have they not thought of this? Mm. It's quite scary. And that's a large corporate with a lot of resources, a lot of staff, a lot of capital. They're not coping with it very well at all. Yeah. 
small to medium business owners need to really think about it because it, it can be managed. You, know, you can't get rid of COVID-19, mm. but you can still run it. I've got clients who are having absolutely sensational financial results during this yeah. because they've planned for it. They've got documents, strategies, policies in place that manage working from home mm. and they're coping okay. It's yeah. not perfect, but they're yeah. coping okay. Absolutely. And, that, and that's really good to hear. I've, I've come across a number of businesses also exactly the same. So the, essentially they're planned for this, but also they're using the opportunity now as an opportunity to actually make their business go from great to excellent in this um, shutdown period and really using the time effectively on this. Yep. Excellent stuff. So um, let's talk about ESOPs a little bit more. Um, I must admit they are uh, a little bit of a mystery to me. I had a chat with with our chairman uh, not so long ago about ESOPs and I think I came out more confused than I think people Uh went into the the meeting. That's no disrespect to my chairman because he's a lovely guy. But can you explain what an ESOP is? Yep. So in simple terms, I mean, the name Employee Share Ownership Plan, it really describes a very simple structure. Mm. What we're putting in place is a structure, legal structure, that allows employees to own equity in the business they work for. Yeah. And there's two key things about that. The first one is most employees are always on an income model. They get paid a salary. They might get paid an hourly rate. Sometimes they've got bonuses or commissions Mm. that top up that income. But very, very rarely do employees have access to capital or equity that's related to the business. And so an employee share plan simply allows employees to own equity in the business they work for and to benefit from the growth in that equity over time. Yeah. A bit like an investment property. Mm -hmm. You go and buy an investment property, you collect the rent, which is the income. You need that to pay off the loan and pay the rates and all the other things. But you're really relying on the fact that over a period of time, the equity value in that investment property will increase. Yep. An employee share plan is exactly the same, except it's based on the equity value of the business you work for. Mm. The other important benefit is not financial. So that's a financial win-win. Yep. That gives employees the financial benefit that they don't normally have access to. The other part of it is that we're actually getting employees involved and engaged in the business. Yeah. And I often say to people, you know, the benefit here is imagine if you had 20 people working for you and 10 of them were in an employee share plan. Mm. Imagine if those 10 were thinking and acting in the business the same way you do as the owner. Yeah. And most business owners instantly go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Because at the moment, it's a little bit of us and them type mentality. You know, I'm an owner, you're the employee. And often, look, I don't think, I have a very strong view that no employee goes to work today thinking I'm going to try and make the biggest mess I possibly can. No. No one thinks like that. Yeah. They're all trying to do the best they can, but they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the financial structure or incentives to allow them to actually do that. An employee share plan, if designed properly, should allow that structure to have employees thinking and acting like business owners yeah. and rewarded accordingly. Absolutely. So you seem that way, obviously, we were going to talk about um, the advantages over such things as cash incentives. So there must be quite a big productivity um, boost in comparison to cash-only type incentives. Yeah, look, there's two key things around that. Yes, there are definitely, in employee share plans, there are definitely productivity improvements Mm -hmm. and even simple things. If you imagine that if you've got employees that own equity in the business, they're very unlikely to leave. Yeah. Now, staff turnover in a lot of businesses is actually a significant problem. Mm. It's not just, you know, you've got to bring in your people, you've got to train them, you lose productivity, it costs money, you've got to pay recruitment fees or, you know, advertise, whatever it is. Yeah. That turnover issue itself is a good example of how an employee share plan can improve financial performance. 
Mm. But it's also cultural and behavioural. It's also about having those employees thinking like a business owner. Yeah. And, you know, we've got plenty of clients that have got employee share plans in place where that has actually made a significant difference. Okay. The other important thing, though, I think, the difference between cash bonuses or commissions or income mm. and equity is the time frame. Yeah. One of the biggest problems we've got as business owners around the world, but typically in Australia as well, we have short-term planning and short-term decision-making focus. Yeah. Unfortunately, our news cycle is really quick. It's instant. Mm. Now everything's online. You can find out exactly what's happening. Yeah. CEOs of listed companies are measured based on their quarterly results, which is rubbish. You know, if I own yeah. shares, I've got shares in Macquarie Bank, for example, mm. and I quit care how much money Macquarie Bank's this quarter. Yeah. What I want to know is Macquarie Bank's going to be worth a lot more money in 2030. Yeah, absolutely. Or 2040. And so the decisions the CEO makes today, if he's thinking that way or she's thinking that way, She's thinking about how do I grow the value of this business between mm. now and 2040. That may well mean you incur some costs or investment in this quarter that affect your results. Unfortunately, we focus on that part, not the long term. Yeah. Employee share plan equity, like business owner equity, by definition is long term. Mm. If we can change our decision-making time frame to a longer term, you'll always get better results. How do we do that? How, how, how does it? Because that's an enormous culture to have to change. Yeah. How do we do that? I'm springing this one on you a little bit, but what are no, your no, thoughts good. on that? Look, I speak to, I, I chair the board of several companies. That's mm. the number one thing I drum in every time I speak to those people Yeah, is around change your time frame of your decision making. Yeah. Yes, you have to run the business for, particularly in the current environment, you have to run the business for this week, this mm-hmm. month, this quarter. Absolutely. Yep. It has to be run day to day. But Longer-term decision-making leads to far better strategic decisions. If you're Mm. thinking about what's happening right now, business owners typically are very busy. They're caught up in the day-to-day running of the business. That's why you hear business coaches and management gurus talking about work on the business, not in the business. All those things are okay, and I don't disagree with any of it. I think what's important, though, is what are you actually, if you're working on the business, what are you working on? Are you working on this month's results Mm. or are you designing a new product or a new yeah. joint venture, or opening a new office that will build value in 10 years' time because mm. that's where the real money is. Yeah. And we've just got to educate people, business owners, boards, employees, managers, to think longer term because mm. every business that I've worked in where that's the case, they do better. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, it also goes back to the lending institutions being aware of the um, – and, and I would think that actually reduces risk in – and when lending institute is, is looking at a business, if they know that these long-term plans are being put into place, then that obviously discounts some of the risk um, that's potentially apparent in that business. Absolutely. And I think you'll see that now. A lot of the banks are now starting to ask questions in their lending applications around, mm. have you got a succession plan? Have you got okay. a business continuity plan? Yeah. They're starting to realise that short-term planning and getting a budget from the cash flow from a business for the next 90 days doesn't mean mm. anything. Yeah. What they actually need to know is where are you headed? What are you trying to do? What's this money going to be used for? Is it going to be wasted on cash flow running the business day to day or is it going to be invested mm. to build value? Because if I'm your lender, I want to know that it's actually most of it is going to be invested to build long-term value because that's how I know I'm going to get repaid. Absolutely. That's music to my ears. But obviously, having, having devised Jazoodle for strategic planning, that's music to my ears hearing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to a startup planning again, when a founder imagines their business and the, and the need to attract 
talent and totally right the uh, just before covid-19 the the difficulty in in finding talent was incredible um what should mm-hmm. founders be aware of when planning these type incentives yeah look there's actually um in 2015 the Abbott government changed the rules and brought in new rules designed to encourage employee share schemes yeah. for startup businesses. And so there's actually a, a set of laws that apply to startups in Australia. Okay. Importantly, um, startups don't really mean what most people think it means. Under this mm. legislation, a startup is less than 10 years old yeah. and turns over less than $50 million. So that's quite a substantial business. That's a big chunk. Yeah, that's business. not small. Yeah. Yeah. And so most of the startups that, w- that you're probably talking about would fit into those criteria. Mm. If they do, there are some specific rules which come with some really generous tax concessions yeah. that they can actually use. One of the biggest problems startups have is they're looking for talent, but they haven't got the cash to pay right. that talent what they should be paid. Yeah. So I need a brilliant IT programmer, mm. developer, and you know he costs $150,000 a year but I can't afford to pay that because I'm a startup and I haven't got anywhere near that much money. Yeah. This mechanism will allow us to pay him maybe $80,000 salary and give him the other $70,000 in employee shares, mm. very tax concession. Yes. So okay. very much taxed concessionally for mm. the employee. So he's got a benefit for doing that. That plan, that set of rules was brought in to encourage exactly that kind of use yeah. by startups. And it has worked. You know, A lot of startups are doing that. That's logical in terms of designing your plan. If one of your criteria is to attract, retain and motivate key staff, Mm. then an employee share plan, according to the research, is a great way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly an area as we're thinking about our scale-up as well and thinking about the types of roles that we're going to need into the business and thinking, well, hold on a minute, we've got funding for this much and the roles that we need are actually looking at this this eye, for instance. So that, that fits that gap absolutely beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. And look at that. And they're designed on purpose to provide generous tax concessions mm. to help people get this happening. And, you know, it's a great mechanism to use. If you go to Silicon Valley in the United States, it's universal. Everybody's got them. They're yeah. everywhere. It's yeah. very, very common. And, in fact, in most employment interviews, one of the questions is, tell me about your ESOP. Mm. You know, how's it work? What equity do I get? What are the rules? When can I get in? That doesn't happen here because we haven't got that kind of culture yet, but I'm hoping we're heading down that path gradually. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the culture in Australia. Is it a little bit more conservative when it comes to offsetting um, salary against um, uh, ESOPs, for instance? Yeah, I think it has been, but I think it's changing quickly. People are now more aware and there's a lot more media coverage of successful companies in the United States where employees have become millionaires because they came in early and 10 years later they've now converted their equity. But I also think there's a cultural difference here with business owners. I think business owners here, typically, you know, we've got a tall poppy syndrome here in Australia. Yeah. Entrepreneurialism is not celebrated the way it's celebrated mm. in the United States and yeah. Israel and some of the other jurisdictions. But there's also an element where business owners often confuse equity with control. Mm. So I've often spoken to business owners who love the idea of an employee share plan, but I don't want to give control to my employees. Yeah. Now that that's not the case. You don't. There's no mechanism. Yeah. You don't have to give any control to any employee. Mm. An employee share plan, and most of my clients don't go down that path. You don't need to. Of course. But it's always a fear from a business owner's point of view. I've always owned 100% of this company. I want to keep it close, and I want to maintain mm-hmm. control. Yeah. Again, I think I started the interview by saying there's two things about baby boomers. One of them is they're control freaks, mm-hmm. and that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent stuff. 
Just uh, moving on a little bit, um, talk a little bit more about exit planning. Um, I recently talked with Andrew Cassin on, yep. on a recent uh, podcast. So I know you work with um, yep. as well. And um, we've often chatted about essentially an oversupply of businesses that are needing to be sold or succeeded in the coming years because of the baby boomer demographics at the moment. But also, how does that change because of COVID-19? Do you see, see the fact that there's going to be a lot of businesses that are needing succession plans in the very near future? Absolutely. I think there'll be a massive... Uh, we had the same thing happen after the GFC. Mm. And the bottom line is you get two different types of business. There are some that have just been caught out by COVID-19. Yeah. They haven't got contingency planning. They've had massive issues with income through no fault of their own, mm. to be fair to them. You know, the economy has absolutely suffered a major shock. Yeah. And for some businesses, you know, I've got a fantastic client uh, down in Victoria that do major events. Mm. Now, you can imagine they've got no income at all absolutely. and no income foreseeable for the next several yeah. months, maybe even years for them. You know, travel and tourism, there's none of it. It's oh. just stopped. So okay. there are lots of businesses that have experienced major downturns. The key thing is, unfortunately, there are plenty of buyers out there, but mm. they're fussy. Buyers yeah. in this kind of environment are fussy buyers. Yeah. They're also more likely to be experienced buyers. So they're going to be private equity firms, listed companies, you know, larger investors, other businesses that are larger mm. and corporates that have got capital and are yeah. looking to buy. Now, they're experienced buyers. So the key message is, yes, there will be an oversupply of businesses on the market mm. as a result of this, but it's a little bit like people that say, well, there's an oversupply of housing. Yeah. Yeah, there may well be, but there are still people buying houses every weekend in Sydney, no matter what's happening. Yeah. It just means they're a bit more fussy and they've got a bit more choice and they're better able to select something that exactly suits what they want. The same thing applies for businesses. The buyers that are out there, there's still buyers, plenty of them. In fact, a lot of them are very much cashed up at the moment, yeah. but they're fussy buyers. So you can't sell a business that's not well prepared, that's not well mm. documented, that doesn't have its planning and its you know the procedures and so on in place. Uh, to, to, and, and that's a really good analogy. I was actually thinking back when I sold my apartment prior to embarking on the uh, development of Jazoodle. Um, one of the key things that our real estate agent says, yep, there's, um, there's lots of properties out there, but they're not your property. Make sure it looks good, make sure it's presented well, and make sure you've got no, um, nothing for buyers to worry about when they come in, and, and it's sold within three hours, essentially, yep. the property. So incredible. love that analogy. It's all about preparation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, so what can businesses do to, to prepare for sales, for instance, at this time? What can they do to... like? quick or even longer-term fixes to, to help yep. them on their way? I think the basic underlying principle of all of that, the same as buying a property, is lower risk equals higher valuation. <laughs> yeah. So if you can remove risk, now you can't get rid of all of it, but you can certainly document it, prepare for it, policies and procedures, systems, processes in your business that manage risk and mitigate <laughs> risk, yeah. then your business will be worth more money and more likely to find a buyer. We actually use a 21-step process that works through Every And I'll send that to you. You can share it yeah, with people love to, love on to. our website, have a look at it. But it actually prepares every aspect of the business. Importantly, it does that from a buyer's point of view. Mm. So it's a bit like the advice your real estate agent gave you yeah. around what to do to prepare that property. You yeah. know, if he'd said, look, re-landscape the backyard, put a pool in, you'd spend 100 grand. You go, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But you'd probably get the same result by mowing the front lawn, painting the front fence, making sure everything's tidy, get rid of some of the clutter. Mm-hmm. well prepared. Yeah. Business is exactly the same. There are certain things that buyers really look for 
I'll give you one example because it's, mm. it's an easy one for people to, to sort of follow how that might work for them. People look at income and just say, well, that business turns over $5 million. Yeah. The first thing buyers want to know is of that $5 million, how much is generated by new sales and how much is recurring income? Mm. So if you've got two businesses, one that relies on ongoing new sales to generate $5 million, yeah. you've got one that sits over here and let's say half of that $5 million is a monthly retainer that's paid every month, mm. like a subscription. Yeah. That is far, far more valuable and far more attractive to a buyer than the other option. So you've actually got to think as a business owner, how do I make my business more resilient, more sustainable mm. and less risky because that's what makes it more attractive. And, and therefore look at your business, possibly look at your business model if you've got uh, non-recurring Absolutely. revenues in there. Absolutely. So if you're making a sale to a client every year for $10,000 mm. and all you do is change that to a monthly direct debit invoice for $700, yeah. that business is now far more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting, this, this chat. So going back to, um, to ESOP, what methodology do you use for working with a startup or a, or, or a business in need of succession planning? Obviously, um, I don't want to sap you, uh, your brain of all the IP in there, but what, as a rough framework, um, what sort no, of methodology do you use? The most important thing for any succession plan, exit plan, employee share plan, sale of business, family succession, doesn't matter, is to understand where we're starting from. Mm. So the first thing we do with every single client is what's called an business insights report. Yeah. And it's a full review of the business. Um, it includes a look at the structure. So who owns the business? What does yeah. that look like in terms of capital gains tax if we sold it to get that clear? We do a full financial analysis. What do the numbers look like? Mm-hmm. Profit, cash flow, break even, benchmarking, you know, you name it to yeah. make sure we know what the business looks like financially. And then importantly, we do a non-financial review. How does it work operationally? Have we got policies and procedures documents? Are all our HR documents up to date? Do we have a board, corporate governance? We look through all of that and then we get a valuation. And the valuation has got two key parts. One is a number which tells you what the business is worth today. That's sort of interesting and useful, but it's not the main game. The main game is your business is worth $4 million today. But if you did these things over the next 12 months, it could be worth five. Mm. And here's what you need to do yeah. to make it more attractive, more resilient, less risky, and therefore more valuable. That process is the start of every engagement we undertake. I've yeah. had a couple of clients, not many, but a couple in the last 10 years have said, oh, I don't really want to do that. I just say, that's fine. Mm. Go somewhere else. Yeah. There is no way I can design a strategy for you if I don't know where we're starting from. It just doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. So we start with that with every single client. That then allows us to see exactly what the best and the most impactful changes mm. we can make to that business are to keep things moving. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. It's one of the areas we obviously we built into Jizudo in the early days was the ability to not just do a business valuation as it stands today, but also, well, if we change certain of the management levers um, what does that valuation look like at the end of the forecast period? So it's uh, it's quite amazing, actually. One of the things we've found in working through some of these scenarios is how little changes to different areas of the business can mean huge differences to potentially that end figure in 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 the in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, makes a big difference. And and people should not be scared of going through that process. That's for sure. Definitely not. Look, yeah. I think that it reveals a whole stack of things around the business, all of which are good. Mm. even if they're bad. So you yeah. find some issues, some gaps, problems, documents that haven't been done properly or updated. 
Well, that's all good news because every single little thing that you fix like that mm. adds value. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. Yeah, and really what you're doing is a, almost a, a due diligence exercise but for internal use only, basically, for this point. There's actually so, a section of that report that we call reverse due diligence. Mm-hmm. So it's reverse due diligence because it's done by the seller, not yeah. by the buyer, yeah. before the buyer gets anywhere near it so we know what the issues are. Yep, and you could be prepared in advance, absolutely. Just uh, something that there seems to be a difference of opinion on this. When would you advise startups to start thinking about their exit? I know that there's most people seem to think that, that, right, think about your exit from day one almost. Other people say, well, that may adapt and evolve over time as you get greater experience in business and, and make new connections. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? I think you definitely have to start it as early as possible. You have mm. to be aware it will change. It yeah. could change and often it does. But I think the answer to the question is this. There is no professional investor out there, whether it's a venture capital firm or an angel or a PE firm, who will invest without an exit strategy. Yeah, It does not happen. There's no way. And so that answers the question because if you're yeah. a startup looking to raise capital and you can't answer that question, you will not raise capital. Yeah, It's that simple. And so you have to have it. Absolutely. Oh, you're quite right. It might change. The business might pivot halfway through. Things yeah. happen where you things might not pan out the way you originally thought they might, but you have to have it up front because that's easier to adapt than starting from scratch without one at all. Absolutely. And it's about getting all the little things, as you're saying, so all the little things are things in the reverse due diligence that we'll need doing prior to when an investor gets in place to ensure that they've got their their, their finances in order, they've got their governance uh, structures in place, they've got processes in place across the team, they've got solid um, HR contracts and so forth. Correct. Yeah, okay. and there's just so much to look at in there. I think that's why you need a system and a process, which is yeah. what we've developed to help people through that. Because there's a logical order to do that in mm. as well. It's yeah. not just random pick things off and fix them. It's you know there's some things that are important and mm. valuable, some that are nice to have, and yeah. some that I wouldn't even worry about. In most cases, you say yeah. you know what, don't worry about that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Just uh, without breaching confidentiality, maybe you can describe a prior ESOP client uh, arrangement that you were involved in and how was, it, how was it implemented and how was it received over time? Yeah. I, I'm, look, I'm happy to talk about one. It's on our website. So, um, mm. And I'm actually now the chairman of a company called Unwell, okay. uh, which is head offices up in Newcastle. But they've got offices all around the country. Yeah. Um, they're environmental services, basically a, a group of very smart scientists that help mm. – uh, environmental impact studies, those sorts of things, looking at remediation. You know, they're a mixture of biologists, social scientists, etc. heritage. Mm. They look at a whole stack of things. They've got more than 100 people in that business. Yeah. And over the last four years, we've implemented an employee share plan. So we started in 2015 with some training that we call ownership mindset, okay. which is actually before the employee share plan, mm. we run an education program to help employees understand what it is to be an owner. Yeah. Both financially, technically, tax, those sorts of accounting, those sorts of issues, but also culturally and behaviourally, mm. what do you do as an owner? What we find is most, and that's, that's a great example. I use that company as an example a lot because they're a group of very, very smart people. They're all scientists. Mm. Yeah. But does that mean they understand how a business works and how it makes money? No, definitely mm. not. So there's an education piece in there around, you know, how do we do that? What we did, that was in 2015. We implemented employee share plan in 2017. Mm-hmm. And we started the two founders in that company actually gifted a small amount, 5% yeah. um, of equity into that business. And gradually that's grown from there. 
That business now has 40 shareholders. Yeah. So there are all, every employee, uh, every shareholder, sorry, is an employee, yeah. including the founder. She's obviously still an okay. employee there. She's managing director, still working there. She still holds a majority of shares, but the employees have now bought, you know, sort of 30% of that business. Right. Is owned by employees. Mm. Now, it's interesting because you look at that business and there's a couple of key things to point out. You know, it was previously high risk. In most mm. professional services businesses, if some of those key people, and there are several key people in that business, there's actually yeah. quite a few, if some of those left, they will take significant value with them. Mm. They may yeah. take clients, they may take project work, they may take other employees. There's value going to leave the organisation mm. is the first thing. The second thing is we've now created a model where they benefit from the financial performance of the business. Yeah. They also benefit from the growth in equity. Mm. So I'm actually running a workshop for them next week, which is around strategic planning. Okay. And that's a much more interesting conversation to have when you've got that many people that are engaged and involved. We've seen changes in behaviour there around ideas and engagement. Now, that's not, we didn't have any problems before. We didn't have any behavioural mm. issues before or bad employees. It was never about that. Yeah. But it just creates a different culture and a different environment around how people are thinking and acting in terms of the business and their involvement in it. People are thinking about being in that business until they retire. Mm. And now you imagine if you looked at your employees and thought, okay, most of these people are going to be here until they retire, you can build a significantly valuable, cohesive team in that period of time. I was going to say, how often do you hear that happening nowadays? You don't Never. generally. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. What a big potential win that is. That's fascinating. I know certainly we've got some conversations to, to come, uh, you and I, in the future, I think, with, um, with this uh, on the ESOP side of things. And um, yeah, no, area. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating area. Well, um, we're starting to run a little bit short on time. What does Craig like to do in his spare time, if you have any? I mean, do you um, have I do have spare time? time, but I mean, my spare time, you know, obviously a lot of it's been involved in that doctoral research. So yeah. most weekends, I'm lucky I've now got uh, children that are into their 20s mm. and they're, you know, they're both working and at uni and doing all that sort of stuff. They both still live at home, of course. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, they're not, they're not dependent on me dropping them mm. off to football games or anything like that. So that, yeah. uh, that frees up a fair bit of time. Um, I do. I genuinely like to read a lot of material. I've always read a lot, even when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I now read a lot of business material, a lot of employee share plan material, a lot of research-based stuff. But I also look, you know, I enjoy listening to music. I enjoy hanging out with friends and talking and go for walks most mornings with a group of friends in the area. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, yeah, I do have lots of spare time, um, but I don't find reading none of the work that I do in terms of reading material on employee share plans is stressful or work. Yeah. It's actually yeah. relaxation as much as anything else. Brilliant. I think there's so much crap on telly, I'd rather read something intelligent than watch <laughs> reality TV or something like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's not great. And I'm just, I was thinking this the other day with, um, with the restrictions in place in, in lots of countries around the world now, are we doomed to repeat for, net, for the next uh, 18 months on TV oh. without a reduction? Well, I actually think one coming. of the benefits of COVID 19 is they're not making reality TV programs oh, at the moment, but, absolutely. but they will come back, obviously. They'll come back with a bang as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Lovely one. And, um, and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, look, I, I genuinely enjoy the work that I do. Mm. I make good money out of it. I've got a successful business that's valuable out of it. Yeah. But forget all that. I would still do what I do now. I love it. Um, yeah. I enjoy working with different clients. 
Um, I just spoke about Unwelt. You know, I love going up. I go up there once a month, run their board meetings, yeah. talk to people, see what's going on in the business. I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they pay me to do it, um, but, but I'd still do it even if they didn't pay me. Mm. Um, I absolutely love it. So, you know, I think you, I, I feel very sorry for anyone when I hear somebody that absolutely hates their job. I yeah. couldn't think of anything worse than having to get out of bed and go and do something I didn't like. I genuinely enjoy what I do. Mm. And I genuinely enjoy the fact that it actually adds significant value as well for our clients. Yeah. I think that's an important aspect. Forget the value exchange of money and fees and all that. I think, you know, adding value to people's businesses and particularly in a significant area that can actually be life-changing. Yeah. And I've got several clients where the actual exit ended up being a life-changing event for them because they either sold for $20 million when they expected five mm. or they built a business they passed on to their family or their employees and it's still running successfully afterwards. Yeah, yeah that's a life-changing event. And it's not, you know, I didn't, I didn't cause that, but hopefully I helped it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's quite rewarding in itself. That must be really rewarding, absolutely. Think mm. of, uh, yeah, really just change someone's life and secure their future. That just it says everything, really. And mm. in an area that you enjoy doing, it can't absolutely. get better than that. So um, we've just got to uh, finish up now. Where can our listeners find out more about yourself and Succession Plus and how can they contact you? Yeah, look, so there's a couple of things there. We've got uh, our website. As I said earlier on, I'm a prolific writer. Mm. Um, there's blog articles going back to 2009 on our website, um, several a week. So there's hundreds yep. and hundreds literally. It's all free. There's no, you don't need to log in or do anything. There's a stack mm. of material on there in terms of things like white papers, ebooks, webinars, and podcasts um, all on the website. Yep. Um, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn, so happy to contact and connect with people on there. And or they can just email me. My email is just cwest as in Craig West, cwest <laughs> at successionplus.com.au. Happy to talk to people if we can help. Fantastic. And I would seriously recommend that if um, that people do talk with you, that's for sure. It's, um, I think it's going to be, and especially with the way the top landscape is at the moment and um, with the changes that are happening in the world, I think a conversation with yourself is um, would certainly be, be worthwhile. I know we will be. Fantastic. Excellent. Good to talk to you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Craig, for your time today. That was absolutely um, wonderful and I love the passion that was brought out. And yeah, thank you very much and good luck with everything in the doctorate in the, in the coming months and years. Thanks very much for having me. I um, really enjoyed it and I'm happy to help people if they're interested or need help. Um, just reach out. Happy to help. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Craig. Thanks so much. <laughs>